Hey everyone, welcome back to the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is part of my birthday special, which is a mini season of seven new interviews that I'm releasing on May 25th. But before we dive in, I've got a couple of great deals to tell you about from people that I've interviewed on the show before. I know a lot of us are spending time reflecting on what matters, and many of you have told me that you're planning on making some big changes in your life. If you're feeling stuck and looking for a push to help you find what's next or just someone to help crystallize the path you're already on, I recommend you listen to my interview with Laura Gassner-Otting and then go and sign up for her brand new Limitless course. LGO just has such a refreshing, no BS perspective on the world and she's been through the ringer. So she's the perfect person to coach you through the changes you want to make in your life. So go to heylgo.com forward slash where others won't. So that's hey, like hey, as in g'day, lgo.com forward slash where others won't and check out the Limitless course. Or if you live in the United States and you just want some kick-ass coffee delivered to your house, head to bluestonelane.com and use wow25 at checkout. Bluestone have been great supporters of mine. And let's be honest, coaches love coffee. Now, enjoy the show. Coach Ference, how are you today, mate? Doing great, Cody. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, really excited to talk to you. Uh, really excited to jam on coaching with you. So, um, I've got to say, I've been to two games at Kinnick. I might test your memory a little bit here. 2008 season, you beat Florida International 42 nothing. I think it was the second game of the season at home. Right. That was the first time I'd been to a college football game on a 20-something-year-old Aussie kid, first time overseas, and I end up in Iowa City at Kinnick Stadium, and i got to say it was, uh, uh, was life-changing just from an experience perspective. Uh, and then again, I went the next year, uh, 42-24 against Indiana. I don't know if you remember that game. You were down like, 20, uh, 21-7 at halftime. Um, yeah, our quarterback threw like four or five interceptions. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah. Ricky threw uh, yeah, four or five. Uh, Tyler Sash had a, I think an 86 or a 96 yard interception touchdown. Yeah. Yeah. Ricochet play. Um, yeah. But the thing, the thing that stood out to me, and, and this is, I'm reflecting on my own coaching, you know, 10, 10 something years later. Um, what really stood out to me, and I play, I pay close attention to this stuff, was like, you could see your culture. It, it seems tangible. It seemed what, you know, not just the players and the coaches, but the fans. Uh, it, it it really resonated from every every part of the stadium, the team. I'd love you to describe, like, what are the core pillars of the culture that you've got at the Hawkeyes, and then how do you go about actively stimulating them so that they do come out like that? Yeah, you know, it's become a huge word in sports and huge word in life. Actually, you know, business is right on through, uh, but. You know, whatever they called it, teamwork, chemistry, you know, in, in years past, 
uh, it is a key element of having a good team. And the two two games you saw, those were two of our better teams, albeit mm-hmm. uh, interesting. You know, wait, we were coming off a, a about a year and a half span where we were kind of like you know underachieving, in my opinion. We weren't uh, playing as well as we could. We didn't finish up the 06 season very well. 07 was a tough year at the start, especially for a young team with injuries. And, and then we gained a little traction at the end of the uh, 07 season, but ended with a very disappointing loss. So we've gone, kind of gone through about a year and a half of uh, performance, I guess. We just weren't, none of us were happy about or proud of, including our players. And so 08 was, I think, a real big, pivotal year for us, in my opinion, at least, you know, a 21-year span of looking at things. Um, but our team was totally uh, committed to really, you know, just getting getting things going again. Uh, that Florida international game that you saw was early in the season. We'd had a good preseason. We got off to a good start, and um, we were three and zero. And then we, we faced some adversity. We lost three games. I think by you know it was like a handful of points. Three, you know, just like three point loss, four point loss. Uh, you know, all last possession type things. And then that team went on and won, I think, seven out of the next eight or six out of seven. I guess it would have been six out of seven. But, um, you know, just it was building all the way through. So long-winded answer. And then in 2009, it was just the opposite. We, we came out of the gate fast and just we're, we're clipping right along until our quarterback got hurt in week 10. We lost two, came back one, won the Orange Bowl. So, uh, But those two teams were two of my favorite teams, and they really um, – the similarity there was just, you know, it's – it's all about hard work. It's about caring for each other. It's about, you know, just uh, trying to go out and perform uh, the best they can uh, each and every day, whether it's in practice or uh, certainly in the, in the field of competition. Mm-hmm. But in a nutshell, I mean, to me, what it gets down to, our mantra has kind of been we want a team that's physical. We want a team that's tough. And tough is not only physical, but it's mental, probably more so. I think that is what mental th- or toughness is all part of your state of mind. Uh, and then we want to be a team that's always smart. Uh, you know, it's not going to beat itself or waste on opportunity, squander opportunity. And then I think the other key component is a team that's together. And in team sports, which obviously football, in my mind, um, hard man, I don't know how many people are on the field in rugby. Uh, but but in football, like, you know, I don't, they have 11 in rugby. I don't know. But uh, anyway, football is like the ultimate team sport because you got 11 guys offensively, defensively. And then you've got all the phases of special teams. So, you know, it's a roster typically in college football of over 100. And everybody's job, everybody's role is really important. So the better people understand that and the better people are willing to put, put aside their personal preferences or desires and just, you know, agree that, hey, we're all going to do what's best for the, for the group. Uh, that, that's obviously when you have an effective football team or effective anything. Uh, and the two, two teams that you got to witness really – uh, they, they they lived those mantras, if you were. They were they were really uh, illustrative of what we're looking for. Why why those teams though? Like, what what do you think the catalyst is to get that buy in? Like, do you think it's the the makeup of the guys in the room? Do you think it's uh, you know there needs to be a certain level of talent there? And but once they see other players are super talented, there's kind of that buy in. Like, where do you yeah. think all that comes from? You know, we're, we're an interesting study in some ways, and it's, it's uh, you know, I've coached in pro football, I've coached in college, and I've coached in uh, what used to be one double-A football, now they call it FCS, uh, and I've coached in high school. So, you know, you see it all. Yeah. Um, 
and, and in call or pros, you know, it's, it's really a fine line between teams. Typically, you know, they're all extremely talented. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a hall of fame quarterback, that's certainly a, a decided uh, edge for you. It helps you a lot. Um, and then in college, I've always looked at it. There, there's a handful of schools um, and maybe it's a handful and a half that just attract a certain kind of player and they get a lot of them that walk in that are already obviously very gifted and they're probably going to perform pretty well. Um, coaching at Iowa, it was ne it's never quite been that way. You know, I was here as an assistant as well as head coach. So I've been here 30 years. Uh, we'll get a couple of those players every now and then. We had two last year, one one's from 25 miles away from here. That's how we got him. The other one had a dad that played here, so he came here. But more typically, our guys are a little bit more unheralded. They come in a little bit uh, with a little bit more ground to cover. And, and that's kind of our job as coaches is to try to really encourage that growth. So uh, everything starts in recruiting. There's a, a requisite, you know, amount of physical ability and uh, whether it's size, speed, you know, playmaking ability, those types of things that you have to start with. And then we try to look beyond. We look for potential. We look for growth potential. We'll look at players and, and you know, project them doing something else maybe than what they're doing uh, in high school. And we've had a lot of players that have done that. Mm -hmm. We put them in a different position and they really flourish and grow into that. So, you know, we've had a lot of luck with, with that, but I guess it just forces you to be a little bit more creative uh, instead of being able to just go take something off the shelf that you know is going to fit right in. Um, but it all gets back, I think, as much as anything. To, to a player really wanting to do things within the framework of the way we do them, uh, you know, being willing to work hard, and then also having a real level of pride where, you know, if it doesn't work out the first time, they're going to come back and go to work trying to get it right. And I've, I've never been around a good player that doesn't, you know, possess those kind of attributes or traits. You know, it's all about uh, your mindset and, and having a growth mindset, you know, really being willing to invest and try to, maximize everything you have. And I think whatever you do in life, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. That's why I've admired you and your work for so long is, um, you know, you're known as a, as a talent developer, as, as someone that can work with players. And then, you know, you've put a lot of players into the pros. And when you go through, you know, if you look through one by one, you're like these guys are solid pros, great fundamentals. Um, you know, you tend to have your, your linemen and your, you know, you're in the trenches kind of guys and they they end up with great careers at, at the NFL level. Where does that come from for you? Because that goes back to your assistant coaching days. Like I read up about you and I know, you know, in the 80s, you as an offensive line coach, like you were getting guys into the NFL from there. So like where does that talent developer thing come from with you? You know, I think like most of us, and it's probably true in all walks of life, all I really know is education and sports. That's the only two, two things I've ever been involved with. So... Um, and my, my, outside of my family, my biggest mentor in coaching was a guy named Joe Moore. He was my high school coach. Uh, and I was able to, after teaching school for two years, I was able to uh, go assist him at the University of Pittsburgh in 1980. It was his first year of being a line coach. Uh, he'd been at Pitt for a couple of years prior to that. They moved him to the line. So he was able to hire an assistant and I was able to go work with him for that year. And, and Pretty much everything I, I believe in, uh, I think the fundamentals of what I believe in have been shaped through his his teachings more more than anything else. Um, first of all, I think you know Joe Joe really understood uh, coaching, teaching. Uh, I'll start with you know it's all about the people involved. You know you're not not coaching a player, you're coaching a person. Mm -hmm. Classroom teacher, it's no different. You're coaching a person, and 
you know, when they, they walk into your classroom, you just never know what their backgrounds are, uh, you know, what's going on in their personal lives, all those kinds of things that affect anybody's attitude or their, their state of mind when they're in your classroom or in football, when they're in our building, in our classrooms or on the practice field, in the weight room. So, you know, if you're a coach or a teacher and you don't understand that, you know, it's, it's hard to really think that you're going to be able to build anything as you move forward. And yeah, I know relationships is a big word nowadays, too. It's kind of like culture. They're almost overused. Right. Uh, but really, relationships, you know, how, how do you build a relationship? You, you express to people you care about them. And then you also express to them, not, not just talk about it, but you show them that you're there to help them and try to move them forward a little bit. Yeah, and then along with that, you know, as a coach or a teacher, you're, you're there to mentor them, not to be their buddies, you know, and it's great that you have a good relationship and, you know, things are friendly. That's, that's the optimal way to do it. But, but you are trying to mentor them and move them forward. That's what coaches are supposed to do. That's what teachers are supposed to do. Uh, and then the other, other paramount thing, I think the fundamental thing that you have to have uh, as a teacher or as a coach, you have to believe that people are capable of growing and improving. And that sounds pretty pretty simple, pretty mundane, but but I don't think that's always true with all the all the people that I get to witness and, and watch uh, when I watch people work sometimes. Uh, particularly in sports, you know, it's it's one thing to draft and we just came off the NFL draft. So yeah, you want to get good players in the draft, but you're also trying to build a team as you do draft. And there's a big difference there, I think, you know, so it's, uh, you know, putting a team together is not a talent show. Um, you know, it's, it's more of a, it's a puzzle, if you will. And, but it all starts with if a physician coach or a teacher doesn't believe people can grow and develop, then, you know, really what you're drafting or really what you're bringing in, uh, that, that's the end all, right? You bring them in and put them in their place and that's okay. That's what we expect. And I don't know, you know, why would you be involved in a sport or why would you be involved in anything that's significant and not trying to be to push limits and try to grow and try to, to develop whatever, whatever the attributes or talents a person may have, you know, that, that's your job as a coach or a mentor is trying to make them grow a little bit more and develop them. So I think that's where it all starts. And it sounds pretty mundane. Um, the thing about our best teams, our best players historically, most of them grew to that level most of them experienced some real hardships, disappointments, sometimes very public disappointments as players. And I mentioned Ricky Stanzi, right, in the game you saw, the Indiana game. Whatever he threw, four or five or six interceptions, is ridiculous. Uh, but the real story is, you know, he, he hung in there, and he just stuck with it, and he kept playing. And then in that fourth quarter, he's a big part of the reason why we did win the game. As, as bad as he had played, he'd be the first to tell you. But – you know, when you go out there and put it out there, it's going to happen sometimes. So what's your response going to be? And, you know, I think that, that's the thing I, I look at, a guy like Ricky Stanzi or you name any of our good players. I, I, can all, I can tell you about some bad times they had too before those good times came for them. Yeah, I love that. And and you're so right. I, I mean, I'm in a Twitter feud right now about the idea of coachability. And uh, I just, just posted something this morning about, uh, you know, uh, you need coach ability. And so it's, it's, I see it as being, you know, the agility and the adaptability of the coach more than just kind of trying one thing and then labeling someone as uncoachable. I think it's a, that's just abdicating yourself of any responsibility or any leadership as far as I'm concerned. And, and where that comes from with me is I coach Australian rules football in Canada. Mm -hmm. I coach, I coach, uh, 
kids that have come either, you know, they might have played a couple of years of hockey in the NCAA level or U sports up here in Canada, but haven't seen my game before. And so I have to believe. I know that they have athletic ability, but I'm teaching them completely new skills, a completely new game, a dynamic 360 sport with 18 players on each side. You can get hit from anywhere. You've got to, you know, bend over and scoop the ball up like uh, off the ground and then run 10 yards at full speed and then kick it from – and those movements, they exist in isolation in other sports but not together. And so I better bloody believe that they're – it's possible for them to do it rather than saying he can't do that. He can't do that. And I agree with you that we, we as coaches really need to flip that uh, to a positive mindset. What can this person do? How can I help them? Yeah. Even if that is a role, role player. That, that's our jobs. And uh, exactly. I realize too, it's going to be a road. It doesn't happen overnight. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Speaking of kind of being an idea thief, who do you look to? Who do you go to? You spoke about your mentor before, but where do you steal from? Do you steal from other sports? Do you pick up the phone to other coaches in football? Where do you tend to go? I think it's a great thing about life, and I salute you on what you're doing right now because you're, that's basically what you're doing. You're creating an opportunity to share ideas uh, through, through this podcast. So, um, you know, life has changed. When I got into coaching it was books you know magazines um then go visit people and those are still good things that hasn't changed but we have so much more information available to us so there's really no excuse not to be learning there's no excuse not to be trying to you know gather new information uh and information is great but ultimately you got to figure out what works for you Mm -hmm. uh you know what can you take away and, and does it fit whether it's a scheme thing or you know a stylistic thing or you know something you might want to implement in your teachings. Um, and then I think all, at the core of all that, too, is always remembering that um, you, know, you can't, you can't, you can borrow ideas, you can borrow uh, concepts, you can borrow different things, but you can't, you can't copy. And yeah. especially in personalities or whatever, and I've seen that way too many times in coaching, at least, where, you know, you work for certain people. Uh, I mentioned Joe Moore, my mentor. I, I could never be Joe Moore. Our personalities were not, not any, anywhere uh, similar, yet we were, you know, we had an unbelievable relationship, very close, and he treated me like a son, uh, so I've always been very appreciative of that, and, um, but we're very different personality-wise, for, so to me to go out and coach in his uh, style, that would have been foolish. I came here in 1981, got to work for uh, Hayden Fry for nine years. Yeah, another person who really impacted my my view of coaching, especially how a college program should be run. So, but for me to try to emulate him as a head coach coming back and, and following him, a tragic mistake. He's a very charismatic, entertaining, uh, light up the room type person. That that's not my that's not my personality. That's not my motif. Sir, my uh, you know my mode of operation. So you know you just have to be who you are. But it's it's fine to you know. Uh, embrace things that you see other people do and I think I've learned from everybody you know good or bad I've learned from everybody and and sometimes you see things you don't you know just aren't going to work for you or you know they're not going to work where you're at or you just know and say boy there's no way that's right like I don't want to do that and that's part of learning too and then conversely there are a lot of things you see out there that hey I might be able to steal this thing or I might be able to take something here and uh, I've worked for Great people, you know. I mentioned Joe Moore, Coach Fry, Coach 
Belichick and Ted Marchabrode in the NFL, two very outstanding coaches just and great people. But right along with that, I've worked on staffs that were outstanding. And uh, Cleveland, I went there in 1993. I was one of the young guys. But we had young people in the room like, like Scott Pioli, uh, Phil Savage, went on to be GMs, Thomas Dimitrov. Those guys were all you know, kids. They were in their 20s probably. I don't know. And they were making, whatever, $20,000 a year. Uh, they all lived together and all that stuff, you know. But those guys, you could tell they were, they were going somewhere. There was something about them that wasn't average, you know, uh, even though they were in a, the, uh, you know, subordinate role, quote, unquote. But, you know, off they went. And I learned from those guys back then, just like I learned from our veteran. We had veteran scouts that were, you know, in their 60s that had a lot of wisdom. So I think everywhere you go, you learn from people. There, there are so many people that just have something to offer if you'll listen. And that's, that's a real stumbling block for a lot of people. Uh, and then uh, it's the same thing, you know, when you look outside your building, look into other fields, be it other sports, uh, be it, you know, business, whatever it may be. And I, I know nothing about business, but I know a handful of people, maybe two hands, handfuls now of people have been very successful. So you just listen to them talk and listen about the way they've done things. And most of these people are people that have, you know, earn their way up to the top. They weren't born on third base. And there, there's commonality there. There's a real commonality a lot of times. Uh, another another great example I can give you, this is probably as good a story as I can give you. So I've heard Dan Gable speak, I don't know, I don't know how many times, 10, 15, where he's addressed, you know, crowds of people. And Dan Gable, if you look him up, I, I, he spoke at our clinic probably 15 years ago. So I, I was going to introduce him. I looked up his bio, started going through the numbers. Dan Gable makes John Wooden or Bear Bryant look like Pikers, his record. Like, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. As a coach and as a competitor, he lost one match. So if you look at those two things in combination, like this guy is the ultimate winner, right? And then, so I've listened to him talk a lot. And then I, I had a chance, uh, I, I ended up at a clinic at Cal Berkeley probably 10 years ago. Bob Latisor was the coach. He's got the all-time record, I think 262 wins, I think it was, is, is a high school, 262 consecutive wins for high school football. And he was at a school where they started the program, so they built it ground up. It wasn't like it was the, you know, upper crust school. And um, But I swear to God, I listened to him speak on a Saturday night in Cal Berkeley, and if I'd shut my eyes, the tone of voice, the voices weren't the same, but the message and the demeanor was very similar uh, with both guys, Dan Gable and, and uh, Bob Latticeur. And in a couple, couple common points, it was all about the players. It was all about teaching the players and putting them first, you know, and really dedicating yourself to what they're doing and their well-being and their growth. And so it just it was a really it was a Kodak moment for me. Um, high school coach, very successful, but a high school coach and a very successful collegiate Olympian, Olympian you know, you name it. But same thought patterns, you know, same yeah. thought patterns. And the other quick aside I'll give you in this little commentary, uh, neither one of them you would describe as flamboyant, charismatic, okay? Maybe not win the press conference with those guys, but if you want a good program, you know, you'd love to have either of them in charge of anything, you know, because it would be good. I promise you'd be good. So that's another lesson, I think, in coaching or teaching or anything else. It's really more about substance than it is style, in my opinion. Yeah. Sometimes style ties into substance for some people, but probably most people. But, it, you know, if, uh, if you're worried about just, you know, a 30-minute uh, success, 
great. But if you're trying to build something that's going to last, it's all about substance. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, we're all in the people business uh, and that's where the, that's where the crossover is. You know, the book that I wrote is literally that is for me, my experience in the corporate world and then also trying to build a high performing national program uh, mm-hmm. on the weekends. And so they're both in the people business and you can look at, at how they recruit, how they build teams, how they think about building teams, how they lead, how they think about culture and all these different types of things. And something I've picked up from your world that has completely changed or challenged my perspective on where to look for ideas is someone like, you know, Coach Belichick, you you read these stories and there's some like losing high school program in backwater Louisiana or Alabama or something, but they do, they have a play or a particular thing and like he'll call a coach and go, like, hey, just tell me what you were doing there. And that completely changed my idea. We, we tend to follow you know, winners and try to emulate winners. And, you know, I've, I've only seen a very few coaches just look at, I can learn from anywhere. There might be a, a play in some high school program that doesn't actually work, but I can look at it and go, I could do that. I could pull it off how it's supposed to, to work. And they just want to grab onto that idea and, and stuff like that has just completely changed my perspective on, on coaching and, and also who the coaches are. I think we, we rush to say, oh, this guy's a dud because the team doesn't necessarily win, but you don't understand the context and you've, you really got to understand who they are and who that, what that substance is, to use your word. I can share this with you about Coach Belichick. There's a, a lot of things I could say about him working for him for three years. Um, his organizational skills are, are, you know, just immaculate. Uh, obviously, he's a highly intelligent person. Of course, yeah. But the one, the one thing that um, I would share with people, I have shared with people that uh, probably most people don't think about or don't get exposure to. Uh, first of all, let me just interject. He does have a sense of humor, despite what you see on the press conferences. He has a great sense of humor. He's really a very warm person. Um, but... The, the thing that really, uh, over my three years, really amazed me as much as any, and it really hit me right in the face when I got there, uh, he is an unbelievable listener. And that's not always a trait that you associate with people that are head coaches or heads of anything. They're, they're not always good at listening, but he was truly interested in the point you just made about him calling a high school coach. Uh, I was in his presence somewhere where a high school coach from Arkansas was actually with him. Uh, <laughs> okay. For the same reason. was, you know. Uh, it was not at the high school. It was at, you know, in a New England uh, environment. So um, I'm not surprised at all by that because he just, he's, he's extremely interested in listening and he has an unbelievable memory, but he processes, he listens, processes. And, you know, it just, that's, that's not a trait a lot of people really have developed, but he is very active that way. I mean, he just uh, is really curious about things. He'll ask great questions and then he's actually listening and absorbing. And you might think, okay, he just took it and that's the end of it. Six weeks later, he might reference a conversation you had had or something you said in a staff meeting. It's like, whoa, okay, so better watch out what you say because he's listening to it and he doesn't forget it. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, Yeah, I I had Mike Lombardi on the the show and we were talking about coach and I just said it it just appears from documentaries and things is someone that – uh, just has incredible emotional intelligence, despite what what people think. Is like 
Uh, I'm not surprised to hear things like that, like six weeks later. Speaking of that, though, you know, like the head coaching role has kind of become almost like a CEO now where you, you, you're coaching the coaches and and setting everyone up for success. And uh, you've got over 100 players. You've got all your coaches. Um, how do you think about that transition now where the head coaching role is It's almost, it sounds weird, but almost removed from coaching football to a certain extent. That's about setting everyone up for success. I know you've got you know, a couple of your, your kids on your staff. And yeah, how do you think about that, that dynamic now, setting your people up for success? I, I run like hell from that, that concept of being a CEO. A um, couple, couple of thoughts on that. So when I went to Maine, University of Maine, it was, uh, you know, at that time, 1AA football. And, and one big difference of being a head coach at 1AA or here, I got up there, I was there for a month, and you know, I was doing everything but coaching football. Because you're you're in charge of a lot of things, you have to oversee just about everything. You know, first of all, I had to know what the budget was, and um, you know, fundraising. I mean, you go right down the list. We had had involvement in that, and that's just the way it is. Uh, and after a month, I called our director of ops. I said they should have hired you, the director of ops that was at Iowa. I said they should have hired you. I said instead of me, because I'm not coaching football. I'm doing is the stuff you do. And so I learned real quickly that's just the nature of one double A football. There's nothing wrong with that, but it. Uh, you, you, your time actually coaching was very, very limited. And so where I'm going on that whole thing, when I came back here 21 years ago, and I say this at every clinic I speak at when I talk to high school coaches, and it's not – I mean this in a complimentary way. My goal is to run this like a good high school program. And Coach Moore, my mentor, when he was at, at Upper St. Clair, my high school, uh, just it was unbelievable. I mean, guys wanted to be on the team. You know, you wanted to be part of that that – group and that team uh and and i watched i'd come back when i was in college and i'd always go up there and train and all that and he put a staff together it was unbelievable and he was teaching them but he also it was just like the players teachers in the school wanted to coach in the program with him and for him you know so he built a culture there that was really you know to me it was all uh it's what you want everybody wanted to be part of it and and those guys were all excellent teachers and, and he was involved in all that. So the most, most enjoyable part about coaching is being with the players. And it is teaching football or teaching whatever it is we're trying to teach. And we work on both. We work on football and we work on the mental part, the culture part. We, we spend time in classrooms with our players because we think that is important. It needs, needs to be addressed. And, and our players have been unbelievable with that. But, you know, simply stated, you know, uh, to me, we're, we're being a great high school program. Everybody is connected and there are people on different layers. You know, there's not the head coach up there in the penthouse and everybody else, you know, and he walks around every now and then, I, you know, I want no part of that. Uh, so, you know, that, that was my goal. And I'm, you know, luckily we've been able to kind of, you know, have that kind of environment here. And so the big part, most enjoyable part for me is two hours on the field where there's no cell phones and nobody can bug me. And, you know, I think my assistant <laughs> come out twice during a workout or a practice and, and called me off the field. And I knew it was bad both times and it was, but uh, you know, otherwise like that, I don't play golf, but that's my, nobody can get me out there, you know? So uh, you know, why would you want not want to enjoy that part of it? And um, so, you know, that, that's kind of the fundamental of what, what this is all built on. And, and then the other part I think is uh, tying that in to me, you have to have a clear understanding of what you believe is important. And, that list in my mind, 
again, it's like a high school program. You only got so much time with players. And it's amazing in high school, you don't have much, right? Because mm -hmm. guys go to school, they come to practice, and they might have a little quick meeting here or there. Get to college, you have a little bit more meeting time. When I got to the NFL, oh, this is great. This is what these guys do. We have so much time and all that. And you're always racing the clock, even in the NFL. It's like, where's all the time go? So there's never enough time as a coach. There's never enough time, no matter what level you're at. So you better know what's important, and you better stick to what's important. Don't go off all these wild goose chases or or get too too carried away with all this stuff that's not going to win for you. And so I think if you're going to be a coach or in charge of anything, you better have a clear understanding of what is important. You know, what's going to – and talking about Coach Belichick, you know, their, their teams aren't going to beat themselves. It's rare they're, they're going to fumble at a critical time or, you know, throw a sloppy pass or – yeah, because their players understand like what wins games, and it gets down to the fundamentals, being good in situations, all those things, and you got to practice them and really make sure everybody understands. Hey, this is what it takes. So, but the more things you try to pile on, you know, you're just diluting everything as as opposed to, and that's that's where Coach Moore. I mean, he was the king of simplicity. He was the king of like really getting to what what counts. And if something looked a little cloudy, boy, he'd he'd make it really crystal clear. And I think great teachers have an ability to do that. Einstein's got a saying about that, you know, about taking a real complex concept and making it understandable. That, that's what great teachers have a capability of, of doing. Do you think we tend to do that as coaches, almost overcomplicate some of the stuff? Like the game is really simple. And I think we are the ones that complicate it and then get angry when people can't comprehend it or what we're trying to, trying to communicate. So Joe, Joe Moore was a uh, career high school coach. He got hired at Pitt 19, whatever it was, you know, 78, something like that. He was about 48, 49 years old. And I, 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 every spring break, I'd go see him. Uh, and then when I was coaching at I, I would always go back there for our spring break and watch him. They'd start. And he was a little frustrated one day. He goes, you know, all these guys in this office, they should have to work at a shoe store until noon and then come to the office. I said, what are you talking about? And he says, hey, these guys have too much time to think about stupid things. So they're always <laughs> always trying to do stupid stuff and, and piling on instead of just doing what's important, right? And that, that's one thing what he was telling me is that, you know, coaching in high school, you got to know what's important. you got to get right to it because there's no time to waste. There's no time to pontificate. And, and I think that's true at every level. You know, people have too much time. They come up with all these grandiose ideas. Well, how are you going to get it taught? How are you going to get it executed? And those things really don't change, and they haven't changed a hell of a lot the last 40 years. I don't think they're going to change the next 40. There are certain things in every sport, you know, but if you do them well, if you don't turn the ball over, if you play defense, don't give up easy easy scores or whatever it may be to the other opponent, you, know, you, might, you might have a better chance of winning. That's what I keep coming back to is, you know, invasion games like yours, like mine, like soccer, basketball, anywhere where you – they're so simple. Get – Get ball in basket, two points, and uh, and it's a, it's a game about space, and and uh, you know, over this period, I've had a lot of conversations, hosted a lot of webinars, and and, and uh, just talked about this idea of like simplicity is, is so key to what we do. And to your point around teaching, it, it's that idea of look, math is one of the most complicated things you could possibly come up with in science, but their job is to boil it down to how is it teachable and what's important. And, and I think, you know, we as a, as a profession would be, 
uh, it'd be beneficial for us to learn from that process rather than, like you said, all these complicated drills and this is supposed to teach them this. And man, the game is about space and about scoring. And you can, if you can boil it down that far, uh, I reckon you have some ways to getting ahead. And there are fundamentals of every game that are critical. And those are the things you really have to practice and teach. You know, you got to teach them and then practice them. Uh, and that, that really is what coaching is, right? Teaching players what to do and then how to do it. The other key component is guys have to want to do it. Yeah, and that's true in every sport, you know. And um, so, you know, the more – it's hard to be a good tackler on defense in our sport. It's hard to be a good blocker on, on offense in our sport. If you really don't want to block or if you really don't want to tackle. <laughs> that sounds yeah. pretty stupid, but it's yeah, amazing. It's, it's, you know, some guys don't want to do it as much as other guys. There's a lot to be said for wanting to do things. You've you mentioned something there before. I've talked about it a couple of times here. Just the size of your roster. like, And I heard Coach Carroll talk about this on um, when he's talking with Steve Kerr just about, I think my world is complicated. I've got 40 guys and then 24 of them get to play on the weekend. you got double that or more than double that. How do you manage that process from the, the delegation to your assistants so that they're set up for success to just the size and, and you know, you've got walk-ons and you've got scholarship guys and there's so many dynamics that you have to deal with with so many people. Um, and again, like you talked about at the top, I know it goes in ebbs and flows in terms of you know, buy-in from a particular group, but how do you manage that process? Because that's a lot of people, man. Yeah, first, first of all, yeah, no, no team is the same. You know, we flip the flip the calendar in January, and in our sport, we're literally flipping the calendar <laughs> right. uh, to a new team. You know, the seniors are gone for the first time when we get together in January, and uh, we might have a couple of newcomers. We'll, we'll usually get an influx of them in the summertime, but but the dynamics are totally different. And anything we did before, good, bad, or indifferent, it, there's no carryover. You know, so you're starting from from scratch, um, and I think couple thoughts on that everything you do to me is as long as the the process of evaluation is fair players will accept their roles and everybody has a role so there'll be somebody in the fall who ends up being a practice squad player if you will their job is to help you know um, imitate the opponent and hopefully while they're doing that they're developing their skills everybody on the team should be developing and improving and, you know, we can, again, point to countless examples of people that were on the scout team that ended up being All-Americans or whatever. So it's just part of the process, and players need to understand that. But the evaluation has to be fair, and everybody's got to have an equal chance to, to have opportunity and earn opportunity. Uh, and then from a, a structural standpoint in our sport, uh, to me, it's all, again, about the people. So uh, if I were a basketball coach, I'm not sure how I'd structure things because I know this. I go to basketball games, I see five guys out on the court and I see, you know, another 10 on the bench or eight, whatever it may be. And I'll see four or five coaches there. I wonder what the hell they're doing half the time uh, with all due respect. But as a line coach, that was your job, right? You coach those five guys, you get them to play in harmony and work together. And, and then you always had uh, usually another 10 guys plus uh, reserves, guys that were ready to go in if somebody came out Um I'm a firm believer sometimes you get too many voices and too many people, you know, coaching too, you know, you know what I mean? Just way yep. too much information. So, 100%. Uh, so in football, I think a clear delineation of who's going to, who's responsible for what. And then obviously, you know, somebody's got to be in charge. So 
ultimately, you know, I'm the one that has to go to the press conferences. I've got to answer the hard questions. So that's part of my job. But, you know, we have a guy in charge of the entire defense, in charge of the offense, in charge of our special teams. And then we have, you know, subdivisions of coaches underneath them. Uh, and those guys are working in, in, in conjunction with each other. And then we all have to come together and work in, in harmony with each other as well. So there's a lot of coordination and teamwork with the staff and then, then the players. And I think that's a critical point when, you, when you're putting your staff together and when you're working on a staff. I think all of us have been on staffs that maybe, you know, a guy or two made it, you know, made it a little more difficult to, to enjoy every day. And then we've been on staffs where, you know, everybody's really in there for the same reasons. And I think in football with our sport, uh, and I learned this when I was here in 1981, I think we went seven years together as a staff under Coach Fry. Nobody left seven straight years. We had unbelievable chemistry, unbelievable culture, whatever word you choose to use. Uh, Coach Fry kind of laid the – he had the vision, laid the blueprint out. And we all had input, but basically we agreed on it, and then we all made it work. And But we worked together. We worked as a team. And the lesson I learned there was, you know, in our sport, you have 100-plus players. It's really hard to expect them to act as a team and work as a team if the staff that they're working with isn't doing that. And I've seen it both ways. And players aren't stupid. I don't care if you're talking about sixth graders or guys that are 30 years old. Players know what's going on, going on at any age. They can sense phoniness. They can sense, you know, um, they yep. can sense. Uh, what's when you're trying to like? fleece them. <laughs> yeah. When <laughs> they, you know. people are dysfunctional and yeah, fleecing. <laughs> I mean, you know, players, kids aren't stupid. So, you know, if your staff is all on the same page and they're together, I think it just carries right over. It makes it easier to have a chance to have your team be together. Whereas if you have a dysfunctional staff or, you know, egos, egos are getting in the way, all that trickles down. It just, it's, it's as simple as that. So I think team success, it starts with the people that are involved as coaches. You know, we're all different, just like teams. We're all different. We all have different personalities, backgrounds, ages, all that stuff. But, but when we're together, we have to be together. And I think as long as everybody gets that concept, yeah, you got a chance to maybe put something together. Yeah, I remember uh, he said it on on the show. Actually, Coach Rana, uh, who's with the Sacramento Kings now, um, you know, he's a, a hero in Toronto. He's, he's coached at the high school level, the college level, got an opportunity in the NBA, and it's one of the most quotable things that's come out of this show. Is, is like dysfunction amongst the coaching staff is a recipe for losing ball games. Anything, yeah. It's just, you know, and I think um, it's got to be the same way in business. Totally. You know, unless you're a one-man show. But, uh, you know, it's just, at some point, if you want some teamwork, you have to you have to exhibit those traits, and everybody does, especially the people that are, you know, layered up above, quote-unquote, the player's level. But, you know, ultimately, everybody's got different responsibilities, but we all got to be doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I wrote my book. It was called Where Others Won as well, same as this show. And, and I was looking for examples of organizations or teams that have looked in other places for competitive advantage. And I'd heard of this guy. His name was Michael Sleep Dalton. He's a punter at ASU. And the story is that in his debut game, his right leg was injured. He kicks with his right leg. So he took all of his punts on his left leg. Six punts in his debut game, never played the sport before. Um, and so I, I put it in that book. Now, he transferred to your program. 
so we'd be remiss not to, to give him a shout out. But I, what I want to talk about is just that idea of, um, you know, it, it's very popular in, in my country, the, the raft of Australian punters that have come over. They've won the last six or seven Ray Guy Awards uh, between them. Um, and, and just that idea of a slightly different skill set, like kids that grow up, this come, they, they all come from Aussie rules football, so they grow up kicking the ball rather than throwing the ball like they do in the US. Um, so I'd love you to just talk about that, like that idea because your game is a game of smoke and mirrors, essentially. You, you're trying to, to create the, the smallest uh, advantages for your team, and, and they, they're able to provide one. Kicking game's huge in, in our game. Yeah. Um, a lot of times underappreciated, under, under uh, um, ne- you know, it's neglected from time standpoint, that type of thing. But it's funny, uh, when I was here in the 80s, we had, um, uh, the year before I got here, Jay Hogenberg was a snapper. Long story short, there was like nine years in a row where the center at Iowa's name, name was Hilgenberg. He was also our deep snapper. His dad, uh, Jerry Hogenberg, was an All-American at Iowa in the 50s um, as a center. And he was an excellent deep snapper, so he taught all his boys how to do it. So he never had to worry about it. And then the bad news was that his youngest boy, Joel, graduated in 83. So now what am I going to do? Well, Jerry <laughs> lived in Iowa City. So I just sent whoever the next prospect was out to his house. They had two stakes in their backyard. And Jerry worked with them, and they just worked with them. And, you know, they learned how to snap, and they got cookies from uh, his wife, Joanne. She'd bring cookies <laughs> out to the guys. <laughs> so we never had to worry about that because, you know, we had the Hilgenbergs, you know, it was just, uh, we had one of the kids or else they were trained by dad. So that was off the list. Uh, but my point there is like, it's repetition, right? Yeah. We moved to Maine in 1990. My son, Brian decides, Hey, I'm going to try hockey. Never been on skates in his life. The kids up in, in uh, Maine were pretty close to Canada, right? So they're, they're all like, you know, uh, however, all over old, they were six, eight, I don't know. But all these kids are skating around, and Brian's like the big clunky guy out there who can't skate at all. But my point is, you know, you do what you do. And uh, Australians have just taken it over because they do. They grow up kicking balls, right? That's what they do. It's part of uh, sports, a big part of sports there. Um, and I always joke about this. And, and, you know, when I talk to parents or I talk to uh, clinics, like, you know, if you want your kid to get a scholarship, train them how to start punting. You know, get them at age four and get them kicking the ball. Because there aren't anybody, nobody will do that. It takes patience. We have soccer kickers here, so we have guys who can place kick. But, you know, a, a derivative of that, you know, you got a guy can place kick, it's part of the national action. But, but it's so hard to find a guy who has really spent the time and, and uh, has the ability to be a good punter. So I, I did hear a stat. We played on the 27th this year of December, so I got to watch a lot of bowl games. I think it was the Outback Bowl, but the color guy mentioned how many uh, punters in the country right now are Australians in Division One football. It was a very high percentage, and it makes total sense to me because, A, Americans really aren't working on it. There's not a lot of a high percentage of people spending their time on it. And then, B, you know, that's what Australians do, right? They kick balls. So, you know, it's a natural, natural, and, and now it's becoming, you know, uh, organized over there. You know, they're training punters. So it's, it's really fascinating. That, that's funny they mentioned long snappers because uh, those two ideas paired together is where the idea came from. And even the name, uh, I've told this story many times, like where others won't actually comes from that idea of looking at someone like 
like Coach Belichick, so like Joe Cardona as an example. So he's another example in, in the book of like trained to be a long snapper. Mm-hmm. And so the, the minute uh, advantage that you get there of, you know, extra velocity, extra accuracy on the long snap gives you your field goal kicker a slightly longer amount of time to hit that kick. And, and that's where where others won't came from was just that idea. And so, you know, an ambidextrous punter, as an example, is in your game, that is the smallest little competitive advantage. And so, yeah, those, those two things are literally where this whole idea and concept and name came from. So, yeah. The punting changed so much. We were a, a conventional pun outfit for 15, 16 years. Mm. Uh, you know, the pro, pro formation and, you know, just punt the ball straight ahead. Um, and then, you know, we, we finally gave in because our college rules are different than the NFL's. Right. Our guys are, are free to release. And I am a little stubborn. I'll admit that. Uh, I think it could be a good thing. In this case, it's probably a bad thing. But I just finally said, you know, this is silly. We can get an edge by changing our attack punt-wise. And we, we chose to do that. But to that point where I'm going on that, now it does help to have a guy that's a little bit more athletic back there with the ball. And a guy who might be able to roll out and punt the ball, that type of thing. It, it puts extreme pressure on the, on the other side of the opponent. So, mm-hmm. you know, even old dogs learn new tricks as you go along. That's it. <laughs> hey, Coach, uh, what have you been, uh, like, studying, reading about, researching in this downtime? Um, you know, you might have stumbled on something on Netflix or down a Wikipedia hole or reading a book or something that's kind of away from football. Where have you ended up? I, I did not re- – I'm probably the only person in uh, uh, North America that has not seen the – what is it, Animal King or whatever it is. You know, you know Lion Tiger, King. T- Tiger, Tiger King, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody, yeah, everybody in my family has seen it. You haven't seen it? No, I haven't seen it. So you're the I'm one not- person in the U.S. and I'm the one person in Canada. <laughs> there we go. we got two people. So, and, and, and nothing personal to those people. I'm just not going to watch it because everybody else watched it. So, <laughs> but my wife and I have watched uh, Netflix. Uh, we watched uh, Ozark. Yeah. Uh, it was entertaining. It was dark, but entertaining. And uh, I'm probably one of the few people that never saw Breaking Bad. So we actually started that. <laughs> so we'll watch an episode here or there. But it's amazing. I, I've kind of, uh, you know, we've had a lot of time, but, you know, it's, it's gone fast. We've been doing a lot of things, doing a lot of phone work just with our players to stay connected mm-hmm. uh, with recruits, that type of thing, staff. So you're trying to make up for the time you would have been with people. Uh, in groups or whatever. Now we're trying to do that one-on-one. So it takes more time. Uh, but you know, I'm still doing some reading, things like that. Uh, just read a book on U- Ulysses S. Grant, mm. uh, cigars, whiskey and winning. It's just kind of like his memoirs and commentary. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we just actually, as a team just got done rereading, uh, um, uh, yeah, legacy. I was going to say culture code legacy, a book about the all blacks. And we d- did that as a team. Five, six years ago now, we redid it this year because nobody on our current team had read it. Uh, a, year, a year ago, we read uh, Culture Code, mm-hmm. uh, excellent book. I really suggest that for anybody that's interested. It's it's geared more to business, but it's it's all about putting uh, groups, organizations together, teams together. So, yeah, there's there's a multitude of things out there available, and yeah, that's one of the things. And then, you know, one observation I'll make about, you know, with all the negative things that have happened, a lot of things that are uh, going to be really tough to deal with, you know, think about economic impact, all those kinds of things. But 
um, there's been more quality time for people just actually to maybe think and, uh, yeah. you know, mold some things over, not only clean your closet, but maybe do some thinking and that kind of stuff. And, and my kids are not at home anymore, but uh, for our guys on our staff that have kids at home, uh, they've had some really good quality time with their families too. So, you know, this is not a period any of us want to repeat, but there have been some positives. There's always a positive in anything that happens and there have been a few at least. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, I, I've, I've had multiple calls with coaches all over the world during this time. And uh, yeah, the, the great thing is that everyone's thankful for this time, particularly with their kids and, and, you know, guys even in the NFL who don't get downtime and yep. yes, it, it, you are busy and you're on zoom a lot and, but being home with the kids or being able to you know read a book, you know, we take that for granted sometimes don't, I get opportunities to do that. We all, we all get busy. That's one thing, you know, a good lesson learned for all of us in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, where can people follow the Hawkeyes uh, going into next season, Coach? Because I know you're not uh, – I don't think you're on social media, but where can they follow the program and and, and keep up to date with you? I have no idea. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, uh, our recruiting guys could tell you. Uh, you know, those guys are tweeting. We, we've got a, a social media guy. You know, Max Allen does a great job with that. Uh, but I, I have no idea, and I could care less. You know, I'm just living life. You know, that's how I look at it. I'm, I'm so disinterested in social media stuff. It's, it's uh, with all due respect. I'm, a, I'm not being judgmental, but you know, I just I've lived a good life. One thing I have noticed is, uh, and I say this at clinics too frequently. I, I watch. Uh, you go through airports, you drive down the street or wherever it may be, uh, and you see people just with their heads fixated on their phones. And I always joke about, you know, I got a phone uh, a couple of years ago. I guess I probably need a new one. But whatever phone it is they give me, there's nothing that interesting. I don't know what everybody's looking at. I, I must not know how to use my phone properly. And that, that is one thing in our building. We do not let our players, like when they're in the common room where we eat, uh, there, there are no phones there. When they go in the locker room, if they want to check to see if they had a message or something important, they can check their phones, but they go back in their lockers. I don't, I don't want them when they're around each other with their heads down looking at phones, you know, and um, it's not a firm, you know, hard, you know, one of those rules, but it, it's a strong encouragement. And I think our older guys do a good job of reminding because most of the younger, young players come in, you know, that thing's just kind of, you know, part of their uh, permanently like, attached to the hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so, you know, we kind of have to wean them off that a little bit. And, you know, here we talk to each other, like face-to-face. And we actually, you know, maybe ask questions about how's your day going and stuff like that instead of texting somebody, you know, that type of deal. So, um, you know, it's just, that's just what we try to encourage. That's, that's the environment that we want. And it's a limited time. It's not like they're in there that much. And when they walk out, they go live your life as long as it's moral and legal. You know, I'm, I'm good with individual behavior there a bit. But don't 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 blow your whole life, you know, just looking at your phone or your iPad or whatever it may be. Coach, I've done sixty something of these shows, and that's the most perfect answer to that last question that I've, <laughs> that I've ever heard. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I mean, it's Thanks, just mate. funny, you know. I just it's funny. <laughs> I, I told too, you know. Try this, you know, a really novel concept. If you have a girlfriend, go out and take a walk with her and talk <laughs> right. to each other for just like for a half hour, an hour. You Ask know? a few I mean, questions, just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a really novel concept, but it you might learn something you never know, or take a walk by yourself. I, you know, I know that it's like therapy sometimes. You know, used to be a run for me. My hips are a little sore now, so I do more walking than running. Or a walk, yeah. It might not look like it to you, but I, I'm getting to that point too. Uh, <laughs> the, 
the games are catching up with me. But uh, I'll give you advice. Uh, if you're if you do train cross train, I used to just run all the time. That was my deal. Yeah, I'm not saying that's why my hips are sore, but uh, I wish I had done you know mixed in some elliptical and some other stuff, biking, you know. But yeah, mix it up a little bit. That's my advice, my career advice. Perfect. I'm going to do that, mate. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for allowing me and us as a as an audience to learn from you and for just jamming on coaching with me. Uh, like I said to you at the start, uh, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff. I'm sure you can probably tell by the sound of my voice how much I, I enjoy just talking about leadership and, and learning from people like yourself. So thank you very much, mate. We're all trying to do the same thing. I'll, I'll tell Michael uh, sleep, sleep, uh, sleep, sleepy. We call him sleepy. I'll tell Michael sleep, don't we? Uh, we were talking about him. Absolutely, mate. That's good research there. That's good. You, you knew the Arizona State story. That was good. It's in the book. It's immortalized. It's immortalized. I love, it. <laughs> I love it. He's a great young man. He was a joy to have on the team. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Coach. Cody, nice to see you.